the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Tuesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. And yes, today is a special date. Well, it's D-Day. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blend is producing. Today we're going to talk with Stephen Bauman. He's the author of Break Open the Sky, Saving Our Faith from a Culture of Fear. We're also going to uh, talk with Christian Roby. He's the political director at the Media Research Center. We're going to talk about one of the uh, CNN analysts whose vulgarity has been... uh, uh, has been called out, and so has CNN. We'll let you know about that. And we'll talk with Christy Lynn. She's the director of Kids and Culture Marketing at Focus on the Family. They are KPDQ's Ministry of the Month. And Adventures in Odyssey has a Get in the Show contest. If you would like to have a an opportunity to be a part of Adventures in Odyssey, that contest details can be found at kpdq.com, as can the Weekend Family Getaway Contest, you and your family of four. Uh, would be invited to Colorado Springs to watch the production of Odyssey, uh, Adventures in Odyssey, as well as other things they have planned for you. So all of those uh, details can be found at kpdq.com, and she'll be with us later in the 5 o'clock hour. Well, in the late spring of 1944, World War II was in its fifth year in Europe. The German army had suffered defeats in North Africa, Sicily, and in the battles of Stalingrad and Kursk in Russia. But the formidable Weimarkt, uh, still controlled Europe from the Russian steep steps, rather, to the Norwegian fjords to the English Channel. Several months before, in the autumn of 1943, Hitler had discerned that the main threat to Germany loomed not out of the east, but the west. In Fuhrer Directive Number 51, he proclaimed, I can no longer justify the further weakening of the West in favor of other threat theaters of war. I have therefore decided to strengthen the defenses in the West. He appointed Field Marshal Erwin Rommel, the Desert Fox as he was known, to reconstruct the fortifications along the Atlantic Wall. Like the Fuhrer, Rommel believed that the invasion, when it came, could only be halted on the beaches. In just two years, the German army had shifted from a blitzkrieg doctrine to a defensive posture hiding behind Rommel's vaulted uh, Festung Europa. Well, despite um, around-the-clock Allied strategic bombing, Germany's industry was producing arms and munitions at the highest capacity since the war began. Hitler's uh, fantasies of wonder weapons were becoming the reality as V-1 rockets, ME-262 jet fighters, and the mammoth Tiger tank rolled off of German assembly lines. In occupied Poland and Russia, the Nazis' final solution, the complete genocide of European Jewry, was proceeding on schedule. Uh, Heinrich Himmler had promised Hitler that by 1945, almost all of Europe's Jews would be dead. In Western Europe, millions of subjugated people living in a nightmare world of starvation, deportation, and summary execution awaited their resurrection from tyranny. They would not have much longer to wait. Within an hour of Ike's decision to go, the BBC began to broadcast its nightly messages personal 
to the uh, French resistance. But on this night, several of the messages were codes for the the, uh, sabotage operations of the resistance. Those in the French resistance knew that the hour of liberation was at hand. And on the evening of June the 5th, 1944, the troops of the Allied Expeditionary Force quickly received word of Ike's decision to go. Each man knew he bore a gigantic responsibility. And I use the word man uh, advisably. These were very young men. The success of Operation Overlord would determine the freedom of uh, continent and of the world for years to come. The men of D-Day knew that they would not fail. They could not fail. There was no substitute for victory. Winston Churchill knew the price of failure, too, uh, and said that when, uh, if we fail, then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Churchill knew that with victory, all Europe may be free and the life of the world may move forward into broad sunlit uplands. Operation Overlord commenced at just after midnight on June the 6th. Well, today marks the anniversary of D-Day. It was uh, codenamed Operation Overlord, the Allied invasion of France, which commenced June the 6th, 1944, the beginning of the end of World War II in Europe. It was one of the epic battles in defense of American liberty and, the, by extension, that of all mankind. Supreme Allied Commander General Dwight Eisenhower issued this charge. You are about to embark, embark rather, on a great crusade. The eyes of the world are upon you. The hopes and prayers of liberty-loving people everywhere march with you. You will bring about the elimination of Nazi tyranny over the oppressed peoples of Europe. Your task will not be an easy one. Your enemy is well-trained, well-equipped, and battle-hardened. He will fight savagely, and let us all beseech the blessings of Almighty God upon this great and noble undertaking. Franklin Roosevelt led the nation in a prayer for the thousands of men crossing the English Channel. Almighty God, our sons, pride of our nation, this day have set upon a mighty endeavor, a struggle to preserve our republic, our religion, and our civilization, and to set free a suffering humanity. They fight not for the lust of conquest. They fight to end conquest. They fight to liberate. They fight to let justice arise and tolerance and goodwill among all thy people. They yearn but for the end of battle, for their return to the haven of home. Some will never return. Embrace these, Father, and receive them, thy heroic servants, into thy kingdom. And for us at home, fathers, mothers, children, wives, sisters and brothers of brave men overseas, help us, Almighty God, to rededicate ourselves in renewed faith in thee in this hour of great sacrifice. And, O Lord, give us faith. Give us faith in thee, faith in our sons, faith in each other, faith in our united crusade. They will be done, or thy will be done, Almighty God. Amen. Before daybreak, hundreds of planes dropped paratroopers behind German lines to capture bridges and railroad tracks. At dawn, battleship guns began softening the beaches, hitting German coastal fortifications. Thousands of amphibious craft landed on five beaches, and 156,000 American, British, Canadian, and French troops fought their way ashore on the 50-mile stretch of heavily fortified beaches, the largest invasion force in history involving more than 5,000 ships and 13,000 aircraft. The U.S. Air Force, uh, who landed on Omaha Beach, struggled with high seas, with fog, mines, and enemy fire that poured down from high bluffs. Many soldiers were shot as they departed their landing craft, dying in the surf. Those who reached the sand met a wall of machine gun fire. One commander told his men that only two types of people would stay on the beach— 
those dead and those going to die. So they'd better push forward. In some units on Omaha, 90% of the troops were killed or wounded, but the assault force managed to cross the beach and drive the Germans inland. At Utah Beach, the other U.S. landing zone, the first wave of troops found themselves 2,000 yards south of where they had, were supposed to be. It was a lucky miss since the area was not as heavily defended as the original target. Quick-thinking commanders ordered troops to follow the first wave ashore to secure a beachhead. Before sunset that day, there were confirmed 4,414 Allied forces who perished. American casualties in World War II were unprecedented. There were 405,399 deaths, 670,846 wounded. We humbly salute all the World War II American and Allied patriots and their families for their untold service and sacrifice. On the 2nd of September 1945, six year and one day after hostilities commenced, Germany's surrender was secured. Total World War II battle deaths worldwide are estimated at more than 15 million with more than 25 million wounded and civilian deaths estimated at more than 45 million. We owe these greatest generation patriots and generations before and since an enormous debt of gratitude. We owe them our steadfast devotion to American liberty over enemies foreign and domestic in our own day, so that gift may be extended to the next generation. D-Day, 1944, June the 6th. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 21 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Later this hour, we'll talk with Stephen Bauman. He's the author of Break Open the Sky, Saving Our, Saving Our Faith from a Culture of Fear. Well, the 25-year-old woman who stole top-secret documents from the NSA and leaked them to The Intercept appears to be a supporter of Bernie Sanders and other progressive icons like Bill Maher and Michael Moore. Reality Lee Winner, that's her name, apparent uh, social media footprint also shows that she is a supporter of other causes, including the Women's March, the Islamic Society of North America, Muslim civil rights groups. Just to get some background, she also recently referred to President Trump as uh, something of an expletive that cannot be repeated because of his position on the Dakota Access Pipeline protests. Uh, Winner was indicted in federal court on Monday after she allegedly stole classified documents from her employer, uh, Pluribus International, a defense contractor that does work for the NSA from its offices in Augusta, Georgia. Winner admitted to FBI agents that she, in fact, stole the documents and provided them to The Intercept, the news site published an article on Monday that appears to be based on the stolen materials. The top secret records show that Russian agents attempted to hack into U.S. voting systems prior to the November election, which we thought we knew, but whether or not they were successful doesn't appear to be a part of at least what was was uh, uh, posted. The federal complaint filed against Winner reveals that she stole the classified documents on the 9th of May, four days after they were published by NSA. She printed the report and sent it through ground mail to The Intercept. On the 30th of May, a reporter with the outlet contacted the NSA inquiring about the documents. The agency then contacted the FBI, which dispatched agents to interview and approached Winner at her home in Augusta. Other than her Facebook page, Winner has a limited online footprint. One news article from the Kingsville, Texas uh, record shows that she graduated from Air Force basic training in March of 2011. A photo of her has been uh, publicly released, but her Facebook page includes information that matches details contained in a federal indictment filed against her in New York on Monday. The indictment states that Winner was uh, blonde hair, five foot five. The document also mentions that she was planning a vacation to Belize last month and that she drives a light-colored Nissan Cube. Uh, Winner's social media account show that she visited Belize 
believes and drives uh, a car matching that description. I guess this is all relevant in attempting to identify who uh, she is. Um, she Her posts on Facebook suggest that she is politically active in February a day after she took her top-secret job at Pluribus, uh, Winter posted a photo outside of the Atlanta office in Georgia um, uh, of uh, Georgia Senator David Perdue. Uh, she wrote that she had a 30-minute private meeting with the Republican lawmakers, uh, state policy director. She said they discussed uh, her concerns regarding climate change and what the state of Georgia is doing to reduce dependency on fossil fuel. So it was a, a congenial meeting. A spokeswoman a woman for Purdue released a statement on Tuesday calling the allegations against Winter very serious. The allegations against Ms. Winter are uh, very serious and, if true, directly threaten our national security. We trust our Justice Department will get to the bottom of this and handle it appropriately, the spokeswoman said. Winter was uh, heavily critical of Trump just after he took office. She used the hashtag NeverMyPresident and Resist in a Facebook post about the position, uh, his position on uh, DAPL. Uh, she posted um, most recently on Friday, the day before she was interviewed by the FBI. Um, she wrote, you are what you love, not who loves you, which probably is not relevant. But a federal contractor uh, was uh, the federal contractor was arrested. Uh, we know that she had been in the Air Force until just recently. Um, and how she got her clearance is not uh, altogether clear at this point because little uh, information is um, uh, has been released. Uh, she is accused of feeding a classified report to an online news site. It has a colorful history on social media that lays bare her political leanings. And as uh, an environmentalist who wanted to resist the president, of course, that is the description to fit a lot of people. She's 25, as I mentioned, an Air Force veteran, a contractor with the Pluribus International Corporation, assigned to a federal facility in Georgia where she leaked these documents. While the Department of Justice didn't say which site published the information, the charges were announced uh, just as The Intercept published details of an NSA report on Russia and the hacking efforts uh, during the 2016 presidential election. Air Force officials confirmed that Winner served active duty from December of 2010 to last December. It wasn't immediately clear if she was uh, ever deployed. Winner was a cryptological uh, language analyst that requires fluency in at least one foreign language, which was uh, not divulged. She attained the rank of senior airman E-4 and was uh, last stationed at Fort Meade in Maryland. Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein said on Monday that exceptional law enforcement efforts allowed us to quickly identify and arrest the defendant. Releasing classified material without authorization threatens our nation's security and undermines public faith in government. He added that people who are trusted with classified information and pledged to protect it must be held accountable when they violate that obligation. Winner has uh, held a top secret clearance during her employment at Pluribus International. She's been employed at the facility since mid February, late Monday night, WikiLeaks founder Julian Assange tweeted uh, his support for her. Um, it, uh, it's not likely it will make much difference. She apparently left something of an easy trail. Um, uh, and uh, I won't go into some of the other details about her, but House Oversight Chairman Jason Chaffetz requested that the U.S. Department of Justice launch an investigation into leaks that led to the resignation of NSA advisor Michael Flynn. In a letter, he expressed his concern over potentially classified national security information circulated in recent news reports leading 
um, uh, up to Flynn stepping down over reports that he maintained contact with the Russians. Uh, the information that was leaked in this most recent uh, incident did not have to do with Flynn as much as it had to do with the Russians and what they attempted to, to, to do rather to influence U.S. elections and made no reference, at least in this information, to connections with the, uh, with the campaign. Uh, we'll continue to follow the story as it, um, as it develops. Well, the question, of course, it is rather, did the Russians try to interfere with last November's presidential election? And the answer is yes, without a doubt. Were there conversations between Russian representatives and members of the Trump campaign team? Very likely. Did the Russians succeed in altering the outcome of the election in any way or was the Trump campaign complicit in their attempts? Well, John um, Bradbender says absolutely not. What I do base this conclusion on is having an actual understanding of how campaigns are run and won, what's possible and what's impossible, he says. And quite frankly, any thinking person who actually takes a few minutes to study the 2016 presidential campaign will come to the same conclusion. Well, members of Congress with uh, several committees now investigating that allegation and a special prosecutor may indicate that any thinking person might not just readily come to that conclusion. But he goes on to say, let's be honest, there are some who are so Uh, disappointed and stunned by the choice America made, so disbelieving of the results, they are remarkably susceptible to believing almost anything. They're absolutely convinced that something must be amiss. And again, there are investigations that are bipartisan into whether or not something was amiss. Well, he suggests that if you know anything about campaigns, it's simply not possible. My hope is that with all the investigations, it won't just uh, end up being political theater, but that we'll get some real answers that will either assure the American people that nothing untoward was done from the campaign, although there were efforts made by the Russians, or that if something was attempted by the campaign, some connection that is either un, uh, uh, illegal or unethical, that that would be revealed as well. Only time, and I suppose these investigations will um, tell the tale. Although what we've seen in the past is the investigations become something of a political tool to uh, drag a question out just long enough to influence the next election, and I fear that may ultimately be the, uh, the outcome. We'll continue to follow the story. Up next, we'll talk with uh, Stephen Bauman, Break Open the Sky, Saving Our Faith from a Culture of Fear. We're also going to talk in the five o'clock hour with Christian Roby, political director at the Media Research Center, on uh, one of their talking heads, uh, vulgar tweets, and what um, the Media Research Center is suggesting CNN ought to do. We'll also talk with Christy Lynn, director of Kids and Culture Marketing at Focus on the Family, uh, the KPDQ Ministry of the Month. We'll talk about uh, Adventures in Odyssey, the Get in the Show contest. If you've ever liked to be, wanted to be a character on that program and you're between, uh, you're um, young, no uh, older than 15, you can audition. Also, their weekend family getaway contest. You can find out more on both at kpdq.com. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. 34 minutes after 4 o'clock, you're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. According to my next guest, our faith has fallen prey to a culture of fear, leaving many not only afraid, but on the edge, even disillusioned. We face a defining moment. Will we cave into fear or rise in faith? Well, Stephen Bauman, former president of World Relief, has seen firsthand in some of the most difficult places in the world how it's possible to embrace love in the face of fear. His latest book, Break Open the Sky, Saving Our Faith from a Culture of Fear, is an invitation to live out what matters most during an age thirsty for answers. He describes his book as an expedition into living a life of authentic faith, free from the fear that so often plagues us. We can either turn away or choose to be brave. The journey is not for the faint of heart. 
heart. He knows what he means to leave a secure, safe place and become an emissary of hope in the midst of fear and uncertainty. He left a successful business career to live in Africa, directing relief and development programs with World Relief for nearly a decade. He was regularly confronted with difficult decisions while living and working in some of the most intense environments in the world. In his book, he examines um, three main themes, truth, love, and risk. Well, my guest, um, Stephen Bauman, uh, is executive director of a philanthropic foundation serving the least resourced and accessible places in the world. He is author of Possible, a blueprint for changing how we change the world, winner of Outreach Magazine's Resource of the Year, and Seeking Refuge on the Shores of the Global Refugee Crisis, recipient of a 2017 Award of Merit from Christianity Today. He joins us today to talk about his latest book, Break Open the Sky, Saving Our Faith, from a culture of fear. Thank you so much for joining us. Georgine, it's great to be with you much. Now, explain, if you will, the title of your book, Break Open the Sky. That is a very expansive uh, thought and an expansive title uh, in the context of dealing with what so often uh, paralyzes us, and that is fear. Yeah, great. Great question. So it's a quote from a, from a poet and um it's about how we can really love one another in the face of so much fear. And I don't know, I think there's a lot of people who are disillusioned with our times and what should we, how should we respond to the fear that's all around us. So the quote is really great. It, it, it reads this way, we are not trapped or locked up in these bones. No, no, we are free to change and love changes us. And if we can love one another, we can break open the sky. So that's where the book title comes from. And I think if anybody can really reach out and, and claim that quote, it's people who follow Jesus and, and uh, you know, sort of the author of love. So that's, that's where the book came from. As I mentioned a few moments ago, you left a very uh, comfortable corporate position uh, to serve in what was an unpredictable position. You transitioned from a, a Fortune 100 sector job to Africa, where you directed relief and development programs. Um, talk a little bit about how you made that transition and what role fear might have played either in making the decision to make that move or once you were in the position serving. Uh, that's a great question. And I, you know, it's really my wife who's a hero in my life and a mentor to me. And she, for three years in a row, she said, Stephen, can we go volunteer somewhere? Maybe in Africa and or somewhere where it's hotter than it is in the United States where we were living. We both had great jobs and we were living a sort of a double income, no kid life at the time. And so for three years, I said, no, I said, why can't we just work with our youth group or something like that. And the third year, I said, okay, hey, let's take a break. We got uh, maybe a space of time for six months. We could go volunteer. And so we went off to, to West Africa with a group called Mercy Ships, and it just radically changed my life. And, and I mean, it, so much so that we ended up staying for six years. The most, the most powerful thing for me was meeting people who had far less than we do, who are facing disease and danger far more than I'll ever face in my whole life. And yet those people, we often call the poorest of the poor or the marginalized, they tended to be less afraid and happier than me or happier than the people that I had known back home in the United States. So it began a long journey, a long pursuit, which which is, you know, sort of captured in the book that I wrote, which is how, how is it that people who should be more afraid 
I'm actually less fearful. And people in our culture around the world, the Western world, often are more afraid than, than we should be. And what is what is the message there? And so I tackled that question by looking at the Beatitudes, the sayings of Jesus, which are very hard sayings, mm-hmm. but there's a sort of a liberty in those sayings, hopeful as well. Well, how can a believer reject the fear that is so prevalent um, and live the authentic faith uh, life that you write about with courage? That's a big question, and we'll break it down in a few moments. But um, let me just invite you to respond to that big question, and then we'll look at perhaps a bit more closely and how we walk that out. Yeah, what a great question. I was recently, actually, actually it was about a year ago, out in the West Coast in California, not long after the Paris attacks in San Bernardino, and I was giving a talk on refugees, and somebody in the front row asked a few questions about Islam and Muslims and, and was trying to conflate um, the whole notion of Islam with with um, violence. And whereas absolutely the tenets of Islam, I certainly wasn't able to say and answer his question the way he had hoped nature Anybody who follows Islam is violent because there's so many examples where people are not violent who are Muslims. But it was an agitated conversation between he and I, and I could tell that he was very afraid, and that the whole tone of his voice was fearful (laughs) in front of a group of 50 or so people. I was sort of looking for a way out of the the conversation and feeling like it wasn't really going anywhere. And a woman in the back row, she must have been about 60 years old. She had sort of golden gray hair, big smile that lit up the room. She raised her hand and she said, Stephen, you know, um, I sit in the back of taxis all the time, and I could tell that she was affluent. She had money. She traveled between New York and L.A. She might have been in the film industry. I'm not even sure. But she said, I often talk to Muslims, and I just love them, and I often talk to them about faith, my faith. I talk to them about Jesus. pray with them. And then she said, well, I guess I should be more afraid today than I used to be, given all the terrorism, that I should probably stop talking to them. And then she said, you know, I just think if anybody should be unafraid, it should be me, because I know my, I know my destiny, I know my Lord, I know my Savior, and I'm just not going to be afraid. I'm going to actually do it more and reach out to these people that I do love. And, you know, what's the risk for me? The risk is far worse for them who don't know mm. God is a loving God and as a Savior. So it was really powerful to hear the two, um, you know, the sort of the two different people respond to, you know, the challenges that terrorism bring our, our sort of global stage and of fear. And one woman, you know, stands out and says, I choose not to be afraid. I'm taking a risk and I'm going to double down on love. And if she can do it, um, you know what, I think I think we all can yeah. in our own certain way. Is it important to recognize that it may cost me something? It's not a, a rosy view that if I move forward, it, it, it it's all going to be fine. It may actually cost us something, but there's also great reward in walking in faith and courage and extending love. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I've, I know hundreds of churches now that I've visited over the years, that has sort of taken that step to reach out and welcome a, a refugee family that's come into the United States legally through our system. And, and maybe they're from Iraq or even Syria, and they've stepped out a, a bit in trepidation. What does that mean? It's a little mm-hmm. bit scary. And I cannot tell you how many stories of people that say, you know what, my life has been transformed. I've learned so much from these people. I've learned what they have suffered. And some of them uh, choose to follow um, the, uh, 
God, some of them don't, but still these people say that they, as much as they had hoped to bring change, or, or as much as they see the change being brought into their lives, they have been changed. Some whole churches have come alive because they've reached out who are, you know, suffering, whether they're refugees or immigrants. So, yeah, there's a risk, right? It may not go well. It's often awkward. It takes time. Um, you know, sometimes it doesn't work out the way we had hoped, but times. And it's almost like 99 times of 100 that people will say, I would never trade that small step of risk just to meet someone, yeah. to host someone for, for dinner, to help out with setting up an apartment in exchange for what they've learned in their own faith. So it's sort of this invitation by, by God, isn't it, to all of us to take a step out and do something that feels dangerous, but in fact it's sort of a hidden message to take a take a new journey of faith with God, right? It's just it's just been exhilarating to see the changes in people's lives. Absolutely. Now, you in the book, uh, you explore three main themes, um, truth, love, and risk. And we're going to take a break here in a moment to explore uh, each of them. But in your work uh, abroad, were there events that shaped your, um, shaped your life uh, to help you live out your faith courageously, uh, even in these uh, maybe risky or challenging circumstances? Yeah, I think the most simplest way is, and you don't have to travel like me to Africa. You can mm-hmm. just, you know, go down in your local um, town or village or city and just meet a family. Go to your local church. There's probably somebody that knows someone where you could go out and have a meal with a with a family that comes from a different part of the world that suffered more than us. And it's those relationships that changed me. For me, it was an African friend named Moses Sese from Sierra Leone. And I got to know him over months and through a very critical time because they were going through a war in Sierra Leone, so Blinda and I helped them escape to a nearby country. And in that place of vulnerability for them, operation on our side, fear, right? How do we help? Um, we got to know each other really well. Those crises brings, you know, crisis brings people together. Well, over the course of months, I began to ask him questions. And he was very honest with me about how, you know, how he and his fellow Africans perceive Americans when they come. And that forged a relationship that really changed me. It helped me to see things so differently, Mm -hmm. more from his perspective than often the way we tend to see things not having been there before through the news media or whatever it would be. Yeah. Yeah. We're going to take a quick break, but we will continue our conversation. Again, the book is titled Break Open the Sky, Saving Our Faith from a Culture of Fear. Stephen Bauman, my guest. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we are back 52 minutes after 4 o'clock. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We're talking about the book titled Break Open the Sky, award-winning author, um, my guest, uh, Stephen Bauman. He invites readers, believers, to rediscover courageous faith in an age plagued by fear. Now, the book is divided into three sections, one focusing on truth, the second love, and the third um, risk. Let's talk about each of those areas, beginning with truth. You look at the Sermon on the Mount. You also talk about suffering. What about truth? Truth can help us to move forward um, with courage uh, in the midst of a season in which a lot of people are plagued by fear. Yeah, great question. And, you know, early in the book, I talk about the paradox of 1%. I spent most of my life in the, what we would call the bottom 1%, the poorest of the poor, with the top 1%, which is basically everyone in our country and in the West when you compare the respective income levels mm-hmm. and so on. And, and, and what I find with the bottom 1% is there tends to be less fear when there should be more. And then the opposite is true for us who are at the top 1%. So 
the idea of, of, of truth being sort of um, a wake-up call for us, what, is, what does that say when we're afraid? Is that a message to us? If we're afraid of people coming inside our country, if we're afraid of terrorism, now we should, now on one hand, we should be um, honest and open, and we, of course, want our kids to be protected and families. But then on the other hand, has it gotten out of control? Are we, are we looking at a clear eye? So is, is that fear actually a wake-up call to go deeper and understand our faith? What is it about our faith that isn't able to overcome um, some of that fear and live like that woman that I told that story that she said mm-hmm. she's not afraid to, to reach out to Muslims in New York City? Well, uh, the question of, of truth goes after a couple. Is there one is grace? Do we really understand the depth of grace? And do we understand the purpose of suffering as we delve into the truth of the gospel? Should it make us less afraid? And the answer is absolutely yes. Should it make us more willing to to love and to take risks for people that we don't know or people across the world? And I think the answer is absolutely yes. And I think we all might agree with that cognitively, but something in our spirits and our hearts remains fearful. So the, the book is a journey and an expedition into the Sermon on the Mount as um, sort of a, a way to overcome the fear that often plagues us. Mm. The other subject that you cover with three chapters is the subject of love. And you make the point that we can easily misunderstand love's true nature and its source. And uh, the fact that faith is meaningless without it, if we don't comprehend this love that God is calling us to, we're going to miss a major uh, emphasis that that we find in Scripture and the call that He has on us. Yeah, I think often we um, we tend to pit love and truth against one another. That if we are too kind to someone we disagree with, you know, whether that's a Muslim or someone else that disagrees with our perspective, even on politics today. And and the fact of the matter is that Jesus was was both a hundred percent loving and a hundred percent truthful. He didn't give up on any of his convictions. Of course, he didn't err in any way. He was he was the son of God, but yet he somehow um, was able to send such an overwhelming message. He embodied love so much with the sinner, with the prostitute, with the the foreigner, right? The non the the, the non Jew Jewish person in his culture, the Gentile that they flocked to him. It was the people who were most likely to be afraid of him were most drawn to him. And the religious types were actually angry or sometimes even afraid. So, um, you know, this idea of can we can we both love and be truthful to our convictions, to what we believe is mm-hmm. right, to the gospel. And if we can lead first with love, would it be that we can be more like Christ in what we do and how we embrace those who are suffering, the poor, the Muslim, the person that's left out, would it be that that would create a platform? If it's genuine love, would that create a platform for conversation and truth? Would that win people over to us in amazing ways? I mean, I was just in the Middle East and on the border of Syria, and all the young teenage boys there don't have much to do because they're in refugee camps, Mm -hmm. no jobs. And they spend most of their time on social media and watching the news. And it's hard for them not to conclude that the United States hates them. When in fact that's not true, because there are many many people who are following God and wanting to 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 um, convey love to them, right? But the message, the overwhelming message through, unfortunately, our media is that we despise and hate Syrians. And boy, what that sows in their hearts and their minds for the future is actually pretty concerning and scary. 
would it be that if the Christian church rose up, like many churches across the United States, saying, you know what, we, we don't agree with, Muslim, with Islam, but we choose to love you, and we want to welcome you the best we can. We want to come and help you. We want to see you thrive and flourish. That message of love to a generation of Syrians, not just men, young men, but men and girls, mm-hmm. boys and girls, men and women, um, would it be that that would open the gates for conversations, for truth, and for many Syrians to consider Jesus not only as a prophet, which is true to their religion, but also as the Son of God and Savior. We're seeing that in the Middle East. We're seeing a, yes. a mass amount of Muslims that are choosing to follow Jesus because of the love of people in the Lebanese church, for example, or the Jordanian church that are crossing that threshold of fear and saying, you know what? They were once our enemy, Lebanese. The enemies of the Lebanese were Syrians for years, 30 years they occupied their country. And now they're saying, you know what, we will choose to love our enemy, right, the Syrians, and welcome them into our homes, into our communities and our churches. And, I mean, we're seeing thousands of Syrians choose to follow Jesus as Lord and Savior. So why can't we do that here in a bigger and broader way in the United States? I think God is inviting us to do that. Absolutely. The the uh, third and final uh, segment of your book is on risk. Can you explain how authentic faith and genuine love, the two things you've been talking about, can catapult us toward a life uh, that we've dreamed about, but perhaps haven't had the courage to live. Yeah, I mean, if we we get a hold of the truth of the gospel, that we are loved by God infinitely, unconditionally, no matter what we do, right or wrong. And if that that grace embeds itself in our hearts and our spirits in such a way that we can love more freely without being afraid ourselves, it's amazing what that can do when it comes to our own steps of courage. And for me, it meant, you know, going across the world and following my wife and, and staying more than six months, right? Working in communities that were in some in war and poverty and so on. But for, for anyone across the United States, a step of courage could simply mean smiling to the next person that's, that's, that looks different than us, that's from maybe the Middle East or a different country. It could mean you know, partnering with your church to host a family for 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 a meal, and just getting to know a family that's so different, so other than you. Belinda, my wife, who I've mentioned several times, she's courageous. She was at the YMCA, and she goes down there, I don't know, a couple, three, four times a week. And she met a, uh, a woman from, um, uh, I think it was uh, Iraq, who was, you know, head covered, you know, head to toe, and she just reached out to her in her exercise class one day and she said, you know, a lot of people don't seem to be talking to you, but I'd love to just know your story. Well, that simple step of risk, right, a simple question has led to a deep friendship. And soon we're going to have um, a dinner together with her and her husband, born to myself, and just to listen to their story from Iraq that has brought them to the United States. Mm-hmm. And who knows where that will go? But that's a, that may seem like a, a risky thing. It may seem small. It may seem big. But you don't have to go across the world because mission is really on our doorstep today. And, yeah, it could change the lives of our friends that we're meeting, but perhaps equally importantly, it could change our own lives. Absolutely. Absolutely. Once again, the book is titled Break Open the Sky, Saving Our Faith from a Culture of Fear. If you want to be challenged uh, and to see what the scriptures have to say, this is a great resource to help you do that. Stephen Bauman, thank you so much for talking with us. Georgine, it's always a pleasure to be with you. Grateful, very grateful. 
We've got news and traffic coming up at the top of the hour. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show, seven minutes after five o'clock. Clark Hilton is engineering today's program. James Blind is producing. Later this hour, we're going to talk with Christian Roby. He's a political director at the Media Research Center. We're going to talk about one of their talking heads whose vulgar um, tweet uh, has been called on the carpet. There's been quite an uproar. CNN has not uh, spoken. He uh, issued something of an apology saying it was just not like him. Although there are dozens of other instances where he did just that, the very same thing. We'll see what uh, what's happening next. We're also going to talk with Christy Lynn, Director of Kids and Culture Marketing at uh, Focus on the Family. They are KPDQ's Ministry of the Month. And we want to let you know about the Adventures in Odyssey Get in the Show contest. In fact, if you have a child uh, age, what, 6 to 15, you can actually audition to take part in an Adventure in Odyssey episode, and that will uh, uh, contest will be taking place in August. And there's a weekend family getaway contest as well, and that family will spend a weekend in Colorado Spring. You'll have an opportunity to see Adventures in Odyssey actually being made and the contest uh, coming to full fruition. So we'll talk to Christy Lynn about that. And by the way, you can go to kpdq.com for information on both of those, uh, the contest rules and uh, how to audition, as well as how to enter the family weekend getaway uh, with focus on the family. Well, tomorrow is a very big day. Perhaps more is being made of it than should be, but James Comey is going to testify. He, of course, is the former FBI director. He's set to give his long-awaited testimony before the Senate Intelligence Committee in a session. Actually, it's on Thursday, I should say, in a session that could go down as one of the most watched and dramatic Hill hearings in recent memory. My guess is those who are watching anticipating some bombshell to drop will be sorely disappointed. Senators will have a mountain of questions for the ex-FBI director who was fired by President Trump and is now at the center of speculation over whether the uh, president pressured him to stifle Russia-related investigations. Asked on Tuesday about the upcoming hearing, President Trump simply said, I wish him luck, which is uh, quite different than what he said earlier, but... There you have it. Uh, here's what you need to know. The, uh, there are actually two Senate Intelligence Committee hearings to keep an eye on this week. The first will be Wednesday at 10 a.m. featuring Deputy Attorney General. Did I say Deputy? I don't think I've ever in my life said deputy, but it sounded to my ear like that's what I said. Deputy Attorney General Rod Rosenstein, the Director of National Intelligence Daniel Coates, Acting FBI Director Andrew McCabe, and National Security Agency Director Admiral Mike Rogers. Now, that hearing technically is on the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act, or FISA, and witnesses are expected to testify on laws regarding the collection of foreign intelligence. They're likely to face questions about Section 702, which authorizes the intelligence community to target communications of non-U.S. persons located outside the U.S. for foreign intelligence purposes. Now, while the hearing is set to focus on FISA, that court I mentioned, the witness panel is rich with people close to the ongoing probe of Russia meddling and potential Trump campaign coordination with Russian officials. Now, should the hearing delve into that topic, it's going to serve as a prelude to the big event on Thursday. So get your popcorn, pull up a chair, and you can sit in and watch that. That's uh, when a at 10 a.m. Eastern time in the Senate Heart Building, 
uh, Comey will testify before the same committee. So on Wednesday, it's this collection of intelligence leaders, uh, agency heads, secretaries, and Comey will be the following day, again, 10 a.m. And these, by the way, are Eastern times. The testimony will be carried live on many of the networks, again, hoping for a bombshell that they can talk about for the next three or four days. Now, why is uh, Comey testifying? Again, he's the former FBI director. He was fired by the president. The Intelligence Committee has been looking into the Russia issue since early January in an effort to try to review the details and inform the intelligence community's official assessment issued uh, before uh, the Trump administration took office. Well, it is uh, in this context that the committee originally sought to hear from him on the 11th of May. However, Comey was fired by President Trump in advance of that hearing, and McCabe took his place. He's the acting FBI director. Well, now Comey is set to return, and the context is much different. Senators will want to know about the Russia controversy, but will also have questions about the raft of reports regarding the circumstances of his firing. The New York Times reported last month that Trump told Russian officials the firing relieved great pressure. Now, the Times also reported that Comey penned a memo saying Trump had early, uh, earlier pressed him to drop the investigation of former National Security Advisor Michael Flynn, which Trump has denied. Reports suggest that Comey indeed is expected to tell the committee that Trump asked him to drop the Flynn probe. I've since heard that he will not suggest that the president interfered in any way. Now, that would be consistent with his testimony under oath some months before his firing, in which he said there was never any pressure from any quarter, the president on down, to um, hinder the investigation. So this will be rather interesting. If there's a bombshell and he says, yes, the president did try to uh, have an impact on the investigation. They, then he perjured himself. If he uh, fails to say that, then the notes that have now been made public in which he said that uh, the president uh, tried to influence or asked him not to continue with the investigation uh, is called into question. So his credibility is on the line, and I'm not quite sure which of those answers would uh, leave him looking uh, better. But nonetheless, James Comey will testify on um, on Thursday. Now, perhaps foremost on uh, senators' minds uh, will be what Trump personally told Comey over the last several months. Senator Dianne Feinstein, a member of the uh, committee, uh, indicated on Tuesday that colleagues will ask the fired FBI uh, leader if they if they can see the memo and the notes he produced around the time of his firing and noted that they could issue a subpoena for those documents. So if he is not willing to just hand them over, they could subpoena the documents. The official story from the White House last month was that Trump fired Comey after receiving a recommendation from Deputy Attorney General Rosenstein, who uh, felt Comey was uh, unfit to continue leading the nation's crown jewel of law enforcement after his handling of Hillary Clinton's email case last year. Trump himself has since indicated that he was planning to fire Comey regardless of the recommendations from the Department of Justice. So it's a little difficult to know what to believe there either. Well, Senate Intelligence Committee Chairman Richard Burr, he's a Republican out of North Carolina, and ranking member Mark Warner, a Democrat out of Virginia, they've tried to uh, lead their their committee's investigation in a bipartisan fashion, trying to avoid the kind of turmoil facing their counterparts on the House side. And they're both going to give opening statements for the hearings on Wednesday and Thursday. The Comey hearing, uh, rather Comey hearing, will be a key test of whether they can keep the investigation on course and prevent it from becoming another venue for partisan warfare. Good luck with that. Senator Feinstein is another member to keep an eye on Thursday. She told Fox News that Comey wants to testify, which is always helpful uh, with a witness. She could prove to be a probing questioner, having said on CBS Face the Nation last month that the reason for Comey's firing needs to be made clear. 
Perhaps that question then should be posed directly to the the president. Uh, but Senator uh, Susan Collins is another member of um, the committee to watch as a Republican who shows little uh, uh, compunction about questioning the administration. She said on Face the Nation that it is uh, important for the committee to hear from Comey. The acting director of the FBI also said that there had uh, not been an attempt to influence the investigation, Collins said. He's the acting uh, Comey, the former. And yet we hear um, all of all these memos that Mr. Comey produced, all of these dinners and meetings between the president and the former FBI director. So we need to hear directly from Mr. Comey on these important issues. Now, there was some discussion earlier this, uh, uh, well, this week uh, that Mr. Comey will not say that there was any uh, attempt by the uh, White House, so by the president, to interfere with the investigation, which is consistent with his earlier testimony. But uh, many are questioning whether or not that's simply uh, because as an FBI director, you keep things close to the vest or if this is uh, is something else. In any event, Wednesday and Thursday morning, these are the uh, the days to watch and particularly on Thursday morning uh, when Mr. Comey comes before the committee. Now, up next, we're going to talk with Christian Roby, who is a political director at the Media Research Center. One of CNN's uh, talking heads uh, issued a series of rather vulgar tweets, and uh, the Media Research Center and others are calling upon CNN to break their relationship with him. We'll talk about uh, his uh, tweets as well as the apology that they suggest is fake, given his history of uh, bad acting. All of that coming up next. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. The following segment of the Georgine Rice Show contains material that may be inappropriate for some listeners, including two allusions of swear words that are not actually used in the story. Well, good afternoon and welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show, brought to you in part today by Toyota of Vancouver. Well, Media Research Center President Brent Bozell uh, today condemned the weak and dishonest apology from CNN's Reza Aslan. Um, outrage uh, has grown in the wake of the host calling Donald Trump um, something in a phrase I cannot repeat on Twitter. Uh, in his uh, statement issued to CNN, uh, Brent Bozell, again, the president and founder of Media Research Center, he writes that Reza Aslan's apology was not only insincere, but dishonest. His vulgar remarks towards President Trump this past weekend were only a few of the many hateful comments he has made about conservatives. CNN has yet to respond in any fashion to the backlash. Well, here to talk with us about this flap that you may or may not have heard of uh, is um, uh, Christian Roby. He's the political director of the Media Research Center. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on, Georgine. First of all, let's talk about who uh, the uh, the, twi- the tweeter, I guess is the right way to say that, uh, from CNN is and what his connection is with the station. So uh, Reza Aslan is a host on a program on CNN uh, called The Believer. And it, the latest series, it's a six-part series, just ended uh, this past April, April 9th. And it's a series about uh, religion. Now, uh, what you said is entirely true, uh, but just to delve into a little bit more of the details, Mm -hmm. he was responding, uh, Mr. Aslan was responding to a Trump that the president made about the terror attacks in London, where the president said, basically, we need to implement the travel ban. And Reza Aslan then came back and said that, uh, in a tweet, said words, the well, actually said, that the president was a piece of S. And then it just spun out of control. He apologized. He said it was not like him. CNN uh, accepted his apology. And that's where we stand today. 
Now, as uh, Brent Bozell in his letter to the the network pointed out, uh, if this was an isolated incident, perhaps that might have been an apology uh, to be taken seriously. Mm-hmm. However, this is a pattern. And in the letter, he makes reference to a series of similar statements uh, using vulgar phrases and words to describe uh, a, a variety of conservatives over a period of time. Yeah. So, for example, in a um, Mother's Day this is the one that I, I find. There are several, but using the term <laughs> F those moms while responding to Paul Ryan on Mother's Day about a tweet that Paul Ryan sent out um, on Mother's Day um, to Dinesh to show, and he was being sarcastic. He was saying that basically Paul Ryan didn't care about a certain group of mothers. To Dinesh to Souza on Ju- Ju- July 30th, 2016, he said, these are all direct quotes. Hey, Dinesh, I'll say this as politely as I can. Go F yourself, you adulterous piece of S felon. Uh, felon. Regarding Sean Hannity on May 23rd, 2017, exactly what he said about President Trump, this piece of S. So these go on and on. I mean, these are all documented. They're on Twitter. They're out in the, the, uh, on the web now. Everyone can see these. What is perplexing is in the the storm at the, after Kathy Griffin did what she did with a facsimile of a severed head of President Trump and CNN dumping her, um, that they have let this guy stay on when his hatred of conservatives is now uh, uh, publicly documented. Now, has CNN said anything up to this point uh, about this? They accepted, I understand, his apology, but beyond that, have they said anything about their intentions moving forward and uh, whether or not he uh, will continue in that uh, that relationship with the, the network? So they, they, they have the gall to say, CNN has the gall to say, that he is not an employee. Um, even though he is listed on CNN's website, um, even though he is a host of a show that, that CNN produces, and CNN obviously they host the show, um, they have said nothing uh, about his about the status of that show, about him hosting it as of right now, um, and nor have they done anything else except a, a kind of a dutiful, tepid apology. So CNN is probably in its corporate headquarters. All the big wigs there are getting into their foxholes and getting in, pulling the covers over, and hoping that this will that people will forget about this because they don't want to respond to it. But as of right now, there has been no formal uh, change in their stance toward. Um, towards Mr. Aslan for what he said. Now, my understanding is Kathy Griffin was not an employee of CNN, and yet they ended their ties with her following the flap last week. Correct. That's right. Um, so she came on. She was going to be. She had a much lesser role. She, it was uh, much less prominent. It was once a year during New Year's Eve with Anderson Cooper, um, where she would again co-host it, and um, she did this inexplicable horrible thing, which if your viewers don't know, it was simply a shot of her slowly raising the head of a, a I guess it was a mask that had a bloodied head of a severed, uh, of the, the president. And they immediately, uh, to give him credit, they uh, cut all ties with her. If CNN, this is not the first time that CNN has done something like this. CNN has, um, in the past, they have there have been other questionable uh, practices that they have 
that they have implemented against conservatives. So they need to get their act together. They need to sever their ties with this guy, whatever it is that they want to call it. It just is um, they're, they're playing games here now, and they're playing with fire. There seems to be a trend in which using extremely vulgar language to uh, refer to the president, whether or not you support him is not the issue. Uh, using that mm-hmm. kind of vulgar language has become uh, much more acceptable. I think about the DNC, uh, the head of the DNC, and some of the vulgar language that's been used about uh, conservatives and Republicans in particular uh, there. Now, for people who want to challenge CNN to do what other networks have done, I, I know that uh, for example, on the Fox News Network, one of their major uh, primetime stars was let go for vulgar comments he made. This was just in the last few weeks. Um, what can listeners do to uh, hold CNN's feet to the fire in responding appropriately to this uh, this vulgar expression by an individual associated with and working, whether loosely or otherwise, uh, working for and with them? So if people go to the um, to our website, mrc.org forward slash action, um, they will see that there right now uh, people can, uh, can click on a – they can find out more information about uh, who to contact at CNN to uh, report this problem or to air their grievances. I will tell you that uh, one of the – and there have been – thousands of phone calls that have been placed to CNN. They listen to these things. And um, they listen when you weigh in on social media, which we are also waging a social media campaign against them. But it's very important that you do that. And after a while, their advertisers, by the way, are going to see this as well. So it's important that people do follow through on that and um, do uh, sign the petition that we have there. Well, I appreciate your bringing this situation to our attention. I assume that some of our listeners are unaware who are not regular CNN um, watchers or perhaps are not familiar with this particular host. Um, but this kind of, of discourse, whether it's uh, on Twitter or Facebook or some other social media platform, is unacceptable on either side of the political continuum. And, and uh, CNN should be uh, pressured into doing the right thing, as they did with Kathy Griffin. Kathy Griffin. Mm-hmm. My guess is because there was outrage on both sides that they uh, felt that they needed to respond, unless there's uh, more outrage expressed from both sides of the political continuum, they're less likely to do so. We'll see what happens, but I think we need to speak out. Well, thank you, Georgine, for uh, bringing this to the attention of your uh, listeners. And, uh, you know, just, just one thing here uh, that everyone should think about. This is, and you alluded to this, this is not merely an attack and an isolated attack against the president by this weirdo, Reza Aslan, who in the past, he just has very, he has, he's a very peculiar, foul mouth person. It's not just this one isolated thing. There is, to be sure, uh, whether it's coordinated or not, there is an attack by the left, including their friends in the media, to silence voices on the right, especially prominent ones, like Sean Hannity, like, um, like the president, like people who are going to college campuses and people who are on talk shows. So we need to keep, I think that everyone needs to keep that in mind, your listeners, but Americans overall. And you can't wait for there to be a bipartisan outcry because hmm. too many leftists don't, don't really care and are actually including and are actually encouraging this. Yeah. Well, I appreciate that, uh, that uh, suggestion because we do need to respond. Hey, thanks so much for joining us. 
Thank you for having me on. Uh-huh. Again, Christian Roby is the political director at the Media Research Center. Um, he made reference to some of the statements that this host from CNN have made using the first letter of those uh, words that we cannot say here because they are entirely inappropriate. I probably would not have been even that specific, so I apologize for that. But it's very difficult to try to convey the nature of what's being said. Uh, and my guest was attempting to do so while at the same time um, maintaining the innocence of the program. So, uh, again, I apologize if there were youngsters listening, wondering what those letters stood for. The reality is what was said is much worse than his reference to it. And uh, it's important that we have some understanding of what CNN is by virtue of maintaining their relationship uh, with this uh, individual. Reza Aslan uh, is essentially endorsing. All right, coming up next, we're going to talk with uh, Christy Lynn from Focus on the Families. Um, they're our Ministry of the Month. We want to talk about Adventures and Odyssey and an opportunity for your family to join them on a wonderful cruise celebrating a significant anniversary. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Now, I have to tell you, I have a little guilty pleasure. Today is my birthday. I'm 61. But on Saturday afternoons, sometimes I drive around in the car just so I can hear Focus on the Family Radio Theater. They do such a great job, and the stories are so compelling. I know it's for children, but still, I like listening to it. Well, there's an opportunity for some of our listeners to actually audition to be a part of one of the Focus on the Family radio theater programs. And here to talk with us about that, as well as an opportunity for the Focus on the Family Adventure and Odyssey Fun Family Weekend Getaway, is is uh, Christy Lynn. She is the Director of uh, Kids and Culture Marketing at Focus on the Family, which is, by the way, our Ministry of the Month. Christy, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks so much for having me, Georgine. It's, it's a pleasure to be with you, and happy belated birthday. Well, thank you very much. Well, let me tell you, uh, let's tell our listeners about the Get In The Show contest. I know we have lots of listeners uh, to focus on the Family Radio Theater, but the prospect of actually auditioning to be <laughs> in a show is uh, more than most kids could ever hope for. Tell us about this opportunity. Well, we wanted to celebrate Adventures and Odyssey in a big way. And, of course, Adventures and Odyssey started nearly 30 years ago. We're going to be celebrating our 30th birthday this coming November. And so we wanted to do it in a big way. One of the ways that we decided to do that is to have Get in the Show. And that's where we're giving children from uh, ages 5 to 16 the opportunity to audition for their part in a live show that's going to be on the Focus on the Family 40th Anniversary Cruise this coming uh, November. <laughs> and so kiddos can go online to witsin.org slash get in the show. They can download the audition kit and choose one of the scripts that are inside. We have a choice between two of them. You'll choose one and then uh, get a little help from a friend or a family member and videotape that and uh, submit it into us by June the 16th. We're going to review those. And uh, then at the end of June, Adventures and Odyssey fans can vote 
for their favorites. We'll get all the way down to three at the end of July, and those three will be flying here to Colorado Springs on August the 12th for our finale event. Now, also for your listeners, we have an awesome opportunity, if they're not in the top 50, to have a chance for a weekend family getaway to Colorado Springs for that finale event in August. So at your website, there is information on how they can enter to win that, and uh, they'll be treated like royalty, VIP experience, being able to meet our voice actors uh, who plays Wit and also Connie and uh, Shona, who won back in 2012. You'll get airfare, hotel, transportation for a family of four, and it's going to be phenomenal. So you'll want to uh, check that out on your website and enter and, and hopefully win some of the fun. Oh, that sounds like so much fun. I visited Focus on the Family several years ago, and just being there is such an adventure, but then to have an opportunity uh, to uh, witness Adventures in Odyssey as it's being put together, and then to see these uh, young people who win the auditions, that is going to be a great weekend. And again, for listeners, so you can go to kpdq.com. You see a big banner there with all the important details uh, for both of these things. You know, when Focus on the Family first began some 40 years ago, it was a ministry Primarily, we thought, to parents. But Dr. Dobson, who was the founder, uh, recognized that reaching out directly to children and this radio uh, ministry to children would probably be the strongest legacy of Focus on the Family. And it has been, and I am just so appreciative for him and his vision and his foresight in that, and what a legacy he has left as our founder, and just so, so blessed and honored to be a part of a ministry like Adventures in Odyssey that is helping kids learn character values, learn how to grow in their faith, and um, and just be kind of that bedrock. You know, we hear so many stories of kiddos that come to know Jesus through listening to Adventures in Odyssey, and also funny stories of of kids that maybe have lied in a situation in real life, and Adventures in Odyssey kind of turns them around and gets them to confess that to their parents. So many remarkable stories, and uh, it just speaks to the significant impact that Adventures in Odyssey, audio dramas and books and devotionals and, and all those things have had over the past of 30 years, and we continue to grow. One of the things that we're doing now is we have an online experience <laughs> called the Adventures in Odyssey Club, and that's where kiddos can be online in a safe environment and be able to listen to any Adventures in Odyssey episode ever made. And to date, there's over 800 of them, and we keep oh my goodness. new ones every single month, and and uh, we get a new one uh, for club members every month online, and, and they get to experience what it means to live out their faith and learn how to do that. And of course, later this summer, we're going to be introducing a brand new book series called The Blagger Chronicles, and we'll have our Adventures in Odyssey Bible. So there's lots going on. It continues to grow and expand, and we are just so blessed and honored to be able to help kids and kids at heart all around the world. Well, I know I have uh, been blessed by listening to Adventures in Odyssey uh, when I'm uh, primarily in the uh, Saturday evenings when it's heard here on KPDQ, when I'm driving around and I will find myself sitting in the car. If I'm at the parking lot at a retail store or in the driveway of my home, I've got to hear the rest of the story because they are <laughs> very well done. They're compelling. They always encourage young people and inspire them to do the right thing. But to, to um, present some of the challenges that young people f- uh, face in the context that really is relevant 
Um, it really takes some skill. Who does the writing and all of the production for these uh, programs that are so popular here and all across the country? Well, we have a fantastic writing team. Uh, it is made up of a variety of people. Of course, Dave Arnold is our executive producer, Nathan Hubler, uh, Bob Smith-Hauser, Marshall Younger, Kathy Buchanan, and uh, a host of others. Phil Lawler is, and, and others help with that uh, writing. And they meet a couple of times a year and kind of go through what the story arcs and things might need to look like and do. And then we have a fantastic cast of, of voice actors. Actors. Uh, those voice actors, many of them have been with us for a very long time, and uh, many have major credits to mm-hmm. their repertoire besides Adventures and Odyssey. So, for instance, Andre, who plays Wit, he's also the owl, the voice of the owl in Winnie the Pooh. Uh, Katie Lee, who voices uh, Connie, she has also been the voice of Muppet Babies. Chris Anthony, our host, she's also done some voice work for Barbie and uh, lots of different movies like The Good Dinosaur and and others. If I were to mention some of those titles, you would recognize mm-hmm. those titles, and many of our voice actors have been a part of that. So those are recorded in L.A., brought back to us here in Colorado Springs. Our sound designers uh, do what's called Foley, and that is sound design. So instead of getting just canned uh, sound effects. They uh, make the sound effects. So they have done everything from climbing on a ladder and and dropping a watermelon to splat on the floor <laughs> to create a sound effect, to putting their microphone in a in a trunk of a car and riding around really fast to get the screeching noise that they want to hear. And uh, they take a couple of months to get that sound design just right for the effects, and also adding in the transitional music and then uh, getting it out to our our listeners. So our writing team, our content team, they do a fabulous job and it's an honor to work alongside them. Well, I tell you, if they ever need a middle-aged woman, you can just d- drop me a line anytime. <laughs> I can scream pretty good. I can laugh out loud. Whatever you need. That's right. That's right. I think a lot of us would line up and, and say, I want to be on Odyssey. Absolutely. But, uh, but definitely, this is a, a very fun contest for kiddos to be able to try out for. And, and you know, at the end of the day, we want kiddos to have fun. We want them to enjoy themselves and, and be a little creative, which we're already seeing that creativity pour in as entries are being received. But we also want them to know that they have a part to play in God's larger story. And so also at our website at witsend.org slash get in the show, we have some free faith-building activities that you can download. There's devotionals. There's some uh, little sermon note pages that they can take notes at church or or a journal page that they can make copies of and use as their devotional time. So we want to encourage kids that they are uniquely wired and designed for a great plan and a great purpose by our Father God, and um, and that they God wants us not to sit on the sidelines. He wants us to be involved and to use our skills and our abilities and our talents for him, and uh, through him, we can do great things. So I uh, want to encourage kids in that way, too. Absolutely. Well, again, if you'd like to find out more about the Get in the Show contest or the uh, weekend family getaway, you can go to kpdq.com. That information is on our, our main page, and you can click there and get all the important details. Well, Christy Lynn, I appreciate the work that you are doing, your commitment to, uh, to children in our uh, community, and thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us. 
Well, thank you so much. And thanks for listening to Adventures in Odyssey. Absolutely. <laughs> I'll be there on Saturday. <laughs> thanks, Christy. <Woo-hoo! laughs> Bye-bye. Again, Focus on the Family is KPDQ's Ministry of the Month, and you can find out all the important details about these two events, the getaway and the contest, at kpdq.com. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we will wrap everything up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show Podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. We're back. This is the final segment of the Georgine Rice Show. Well, as was uh, briefly referenced at the open of today's program, today happens to be D-Day, but it also happens to be my 61st birthday. So I've been celebrating at my desk, driving in the car, and tonight I have a rehearsal. So it's not a big celebration day, but it is a day of gratitude. I looked up some uh, some wise sage um, advice on the subject of aging. Robert Frost said, A diplomat is a man who always remembers a woman's birthday, but never remembers her age. Well, I didn't marry a diplomat. He remembers both. But uh, I did marry a Christian man, and I'm grateful for that. Agatha Christie said this about aging. An archaeologist is the best husband a woman can have. The older she gets the more interesting he is in her. I'm going to talk to Dan about archaeology, see if we can get him interested. Will Rogers said, we could certainly slow the aging process down if it had to work its way through Congress. Hmm, I'm thinking about introducing something. It may never pass, and I'll never get any older. And George Carlin said, so far, this is the oldest I've been. Well, this is the oldest I've been. And I've resisted what I do every year on my birthday, and that is to do a little math. I count the number of days, hours, minutes, and I come up with a figure that represents the whole of my life. I subtract the hours that I think I probably spent sleeping, uh, the time I've spent working where I'm doing compulsory uh, work, or the time that I spent in school, and then distill down the discretionary time I've had over the course of a lifetime, and I evaluate whether or not where I stand today in terms of my maturity and wisdom and understanding really reflects all of the time that I've had to myself to develop character to develop wisdom and understanding, to be a person of insight. Well, I have to admit, I fall far short of what those numbers suggest they should be. But I'm working on it. I'm still a student of God's Word, and I consider that the most important influence in my life. If I'm not spending time in God's Word, and I have to tell you, there are days when I don't. And uh, I'm ashamed to admit that, but it's a fact of life. I'm in a very busy period of life, and sometimes um, minutes to myself are very rare. It's not a good excuse. It's not a good reason. Um, but it is a fact of life. And I can tell you, I can tell the difference in the course of a day when I haven't spent time with God's word wide open, when I haven't spent time in his presence in prayer, meditating on, on the truths of his word, seeking direction, asking the Holy Spirit to order my steps and guide me. So I have to confess that's, uh, that's an area I'm still working on and I'm 61 years old. I came to faith in Christ when I was quite young. In fact, I was about six or seven in vacation Bible school. I remember very vividly being given the invitation and raising my little black hand and knowing at that moment that God took this little girl very seriously. I'd only been to Sunday school. I'd memorized a few um, verses from the Bible, so I wasn't a great theological uh, theologian or scholar, but I did understand my need for Christ. I had witnessed in the lives of my parents this profound faith 
uh, in God. And I watched them in some very stressful situations in our neighborhood where our black family was not always welcome and how my parents conducted themselves in public as well as how they conducted themselves privately in our home. I saw their devotion to Christ. I saw a consistency that uh, that was very um Interesting to me, and I wanted to have the same ability that I saw in them to forgive those who had been unkind, which is an understatement uh, to describe some of the situations they had had to endure. Uh, but all of that to say that I became a Christian at a very young age. I'm now 61 years old, and I still find it difficult uh, every day to spend as much time in God's Word and in His presence as I know is absolutely necessary. So sometimes I'm supplementing during the course of the day. I think about what I do here at work. I have the computer screen on. I have the television on. I'm reading things uh, pretty much all day long. I'm being fed by what's happening in the culture. Who said what? What's happening there? And trying to understand all of those details. And I recognize that all of that is worthless uh, if you do not um, put it in the broader context of a sovereign God who is sovereign over the affairs of men. If I don't submit myself to his lordship, if I don't recognize that the fear that all of the things I'm reading and seeing suggests ought to overwhelm me uh, has its proper place under the lordship of Christ so that I can walk uh, forward with courage uh, because he is for me, he is in me, he is with me, and his word gives me great insight into what uh, the nature of man and what's uh, what's happening. So all of that to say, I'm 61 years old today. I realize that the older you get as a woman, you're not supposed to say that. But as I say almost every year that I have a birthday, my older brother, he was 16 when he drowned, and I think about, hmm, All the years he didn't have. And I'm grateful to be a middle-aged, well, really beyond middle age, to be an old woman. <laughs> of course, in some cultures, I'm elderly, but I'm grateful for the life that God has given me. My desire is to be faithful, to live with purpose, and to spend every moment bringing honor and glory to his name. Okay, there's no whimpering in radio. <clears throat> Tomorrow on the program, we're going to talk with Gary Moreland. He is the author of A Family Shaped by Grace. I grew up in one of those, by the way. How to Get Along with the People Who Matter Most. On Thursday, we'll talk with John Stone Street, co-author of A Practical Guide to Culture, Helping the Next Generation Navigate Today's World. And on Friday, well, you know what we'll do. We'll lighten up. I want to thank Clark Hilton for engineering today's program, James Blind for engineering a portion of and producing all of today's program, and thank you very much for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. It's a thrill to spend the afternoon with you, and I hope you will uh, have a great uh, rest of the day. On me, it's my birthday. Good night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like to download a podcast of the show or would like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com or on Facebook. Follow the show on Twitter at GRice Show and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.